What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguera. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me. It was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. And it's funny, I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Look, it's funny. Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast hosted live from Death Row. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. Today we're going to talk about a guy named Larry Hall. And he's a serial killer and his story is really fascinating. It kind of parallels a little bit what you're working on at the moment and, and what you're engaged in, Bill. <laughs> and we'll get into that in a minute. First, I want to tackle a few listener submitted questions. And we do appreciate you guys sending in your questions for Bill. You can't really get these answered anywhere else for the most part. Uh, if you want to submit a question, you can send it to Facebook at Death Row Diaries, Instagram at Death Row Diaries. Also through our Patreon page, which is picking up where we have a lot of exclusive content, bonus episodes, stuff that you won't get anywhere else. And we appreciate everyone that's subscribing. So if you're listening and you haven't checked it out, you might want to, you know, spend a few minutes. You can give a few dollars a month and help support the show. And uh, yeah, you, you might want to look into that. That's patreon.com slash death row diaries, which is where our next question comes from. This is from Caroline, a loyal listener, one of our first Patreon people. Uh, she says, Bill, what is the difference between state and federal prisons? And what's the difference between state and federal death rows and executions? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a pretty good question. There's, um, there's a lot of difference between federal and state prison, of course. You have to commit a federal offense to go to a federal prison, and state, of course, is for defendants that have committed state crimes. The difference in the state and, and uh, federal prisons are, well, this is not a joke, but it's the food, too. A lot of guys know how great the food is in the federal system as opposed to the state. Um, as far as, look, you're in a cell. You've got to sell time. A lot of people believe that, and it's partially true, that federal prisons, are a little bit more comfortable than state prisons. They're better funded, they have better programs, better food, of course, and in federal prison, you can be sent to any state to do time. Uh, so in federal prison, of course, um, you can be sent to any state. If you commit an offense in California, it's a federal offense, you can be sent to Maryland or to New York. There is no, uh, like, a jurisdiction where you can stay in California because you're in state prison. If you commit a state offense, you stay in that state or you stay in the states. That's some of the biggest uh, differences in the federal and the state prisons itself. So in terms of that, you're still in prison and 
you're going to do your time so you get out. Uh, regarding executions on death row, I guess, again, this is not a joke, but the federal system, they actually execute you, uh, like Texas and Florida. California, not so much. And we've discussed why that is. But also the appeal process is different. If you have federal execution coming up, um, your appeals are, the jurisdiction is of the federal level, so you go straight to federal courts. Where in the state, if you commit a, a state uh, offense that requires an execution, you have to go to the state level, and once you exhaust your state appeals, then you go again into the federal level if you have issues that are constitutional violations, which means the Eighth Amendment, meaning, you know, or equal protection or due process or whatever the, um, the constitutional issue you're bringing up. So it's a little bit different, and the state level seems to be longer than the uh, federal appeal process for an execution, but again, it depends on everyone's case. Aren't the sentences uh, like more true to the word in the, in the federal system? Like you have to serve more of your time. That's not necessarily true. It depends if it's a violent crime or a drug offense or a, or white collar. It really depends. Depends on the judge. There are guidelines the judge has to abide by. It doesn't mean you're gonna get less time. If it gives you one year, it doesn't mean you're gonna do one year. It also depends on the population of the prison system, how many people are there, are they doing early releases, your time spent there plays a big part. Are you going to school? Are you working? There's a lot of things. Are you a disciplinary issue? Do you have you know multiple stabbings? Do you have you picked up another case in prison? There's a lot of factors that go into how much time you actually do in the federal system, like the state system. Yeah, plus I think it sounds cooler to say you're in the federal system personally, but that's just me. Thank you, Caroline, for that question. Steven sent us an email, and or, or a, a Facebook message, sorry, got to get the terminology right. And he said, have you guys heard of the Iceman Richard Kuklinski? You should do an episode on him. And I think we talked about him briefly. I would like to do one because this guy is hilarious. Not saying he's a good guy or anything, but his YouTube interviews are really... I enjoy watching a guy intimidate a kiss-ass journalist. That's just something I get off on. So um, I wouldn't say I'm a fan of his, but I kind of like what he's doing in the interviews, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, the Iceman's an interesting character. And I I said, we we have spoken about this before. The Iceman was a hitman for the mom. Uh, extremely deranged hitman. This guy did stuff that no one had done before, and I think I mentioned that the mob required evidence that you had actually killed the person. And you know, setting a Polaroid, well, you could put some ketchup on somebody, take a picture of them, and they look like they're dead. Their eyes are closed. Well, the hitman took the things to a different level. He actually filmed the person as they were dying, and it's not one of those things that you say, "Oh, he shot him." No. This guy got very creative. So with this guy, the Iceman, he did things that no one had done before to prove that he'd actually killed people. Of course, you can easily fake a Polaroid. Take a picture of a, of a corpse or a person, make them close their eyes, put a smudge on their forehead like a, like a bullet hole, whatever. It can be done. The Iceman actually took people into the Catskill Mountains, tied them to a chair, put a motion camera in front of them, and then cut the person, and then left. And of course, 
the Catskills are famous for huge field runs. Well, you guys can imagine that the film was about the guy being eaten by alive by rats until he's just bones. He would give that evidence to the mob boss who he was working for to prove he had done the job. This guy was creative and nothing else, but very interesting guy, very violent guy. And there are questions on whether he was just a serial killer who was also a hitman. And you, you ask the question, can a hitman be a serial killer? Well, in his case, there's a huge question mark, and it would be interesting to talk about that. Yeah, definitely. So thank you, Stephen. Pete from Western Australia says, have you guys heard of Charles Bronson? I was about to stop reading there because that was a guy in the 80s whose wife got killed in every movie and then he just killed a bunch of strangers, it seemed like. I don't really know what was going on uh, with the writing in those films. But no, uh, this is a... (laughs) Yeah, it's a little before my time. Do you like those movies? Yeah, Death Wish, Charles Bronson, and who hasn't? Yeah, it's the same movie over and over and over again. It's just, it's just a different, they put different episodes. Chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, I think they're chapter 38 or something, right? He's like 69 or 80 years old, and he's running around town with 9mm that's come out of a, a British spy movie killing everybody, right? Yeah, and smoking a lot. So Charles Bronson <laughs> is, uh, I guess he's a British criminal. He's been called the most violent prisoner in Britain. So, you know, he might throw tea in your face or something. We'll have to get uh we'll have to get to that and do a little more research on it cuz I hadn't heard of it, but thanks Pete for bringing it to our attention. We'll definitely look into it. Eric, one of our also our our Patreon guys and one of our very loyal listeners, <laughs> he he sent a clip and I don't need to play you the clip or anything, but there's a guy named Steven Sanderson and he killed his cellmate because his cellmate was a pedophile and his cellmate wouldn't shut up about it. But the interesting thing about the story is that he pled guilty and he was very calm and collected. He seemed more sane than I do really. And just said, yeah, I wanted to kill him because, uh, you know, he's a pedophile and he was bothering me and I don't like pedophiles. So I killed him. And I was just wondering if that story sounds kind of familiar as far as something you might have experience with. Even if someone kills a pedophile, I picture them as being kind of amped up, you know, kind of intense. But there was something about this guy. He just seemed like an accountant or a a cool guy that, that you would meet at a bar or something just talking about how he killed a pedophile. I thought it was an interesting story. Again, these things that you and I have brought up in the past and I've talked about, and I've said that there's a huge difference between a convict and an inmate or a prisoner. Uh, and this is the state of mind of convicts. I've talked about with serial killers. Their job is to exterminate them. And this is the same for pedophiles. Let me come back and talk, talk about this. Hey, man. Yeah, go ahead. And so as I was saying, and I don't condone this behavior, but with convicts, um, when you come out to a yard, your first day out to the yard, yes, with convicts, like this guy who killed his cellmates, it's kind of a, a, a norm in prison for convicts that if you see one, you tend to kill them. And when you come out to a yard for the first time, you're usually asked 
paperwork, meaning what you're there for. Of course, you could be there for burglary, but you have 50 other cases of child molestation in your, in your past. They're going to find out. People check on people in prison. So when this guy is very sane, and as insane as it sounds that you kill another person, with these guys, the convicts, they're offended by sexually depraved individuals. And a person who molests a child, kills a child, harms a child, is in that category. And that's why the guy didn't seem angry or intense or pumped up. He just said, look, this is what it is, and this is why I did it. And this is kind of the mind frame in prison. And um, it's one of the things that you and I first spoke about when we start Death Row Diaries was to explain the convict's state of mind, and that's how convicts um, think. And it's the same thing for rape. If you're in prison for rape, a convict will try and kill you. Mark says, Bill, is there a specific song or a composition that you kind of listen to maybe over and over or something that has helped get you through the day? Something that kind of puts you at peace or something? I'm a big fan of lead guitar. You know, I have a stereo, so I'm able to listen to that. We don't get podcasts or anything like that in prison. Or at least we don't hear on death row, but... Um, yeah, look, I like the music of Joe Bautamasa. I like his lead guitar, specifically a song called Happier Times. And I'm a big fan of Led Zeppelin, so anything with a lot of lead guitar, classic rock music, I can really appreciate that. But um, if it really comes down to you need one song, you know, how about um, Ten Years Gone by Led Zeppelin? Excellent. Well, thank you all for the questions. We'll get to the rest of them on a future episode next week and keep them coming as i said check out the instagram facebook and especially the patreon page there's people that give two dollars a month and really that's anyway consider it happy holidays bill bill i want to talk about larry hall the subject of today's episode this guy is a really creepy guy he's kind of a He's a very self-aware killer. He likes to toy with law enforcement for his own amusement, I think. He's a really weird guy. And the interesting one of the interesting things about this story is it kind of parallels the work that you're doing with a killer that that you that you uh I wouldn't say befriended, you pretended to befriend him. Uh, named Naso. And uh, the same thing happened here with a guy named Keen who went into the prison system. Well, he was already in the prison system, but he was given an assignment, basically. Uh, and this story might sound familiar. It's it's a Apple Plus show called Blackbird. And I watched the first episode last night. It's pretty good. I'm going to keep watching it. Um, but anyway, this this is kind of similar to your own life right now, right? Yeah, there's, there's similarities uh, between myself and James or Jimmy Keen that, of course, he was sent into the prison system. He had received a 10-year sentence for drug and arms dealing, and his assignment was to get this guy Hall to really open up to him because the prosecution in the FBI or the federal prosecutor was afraid that Larry Hall would win his appeal and, and ultimately get out and continue to murder 
children because this guy was a a rapist, kidnapper, torturer uh, of young women, and in most cases, young children. Uh, really bad guy. This guy, you know, if you if you're looking for a serial killer in your mind, this guy really fits the profile. Creepy guy. You're always talking about guys who drive vans around. This guy had a 1982 Dodge Tone van that he cruised around. And there are speculations that he has over 50 kills. Um, so with this guy, we, we really don't know exactly what's the truth. But I like to delve into some of his state of mind and why he confessed and then recanted those testimonies. But I think the number is right around 50. This guy was a prolific serial killer. And, and I didn't know if you noticed that, but he was never convicted of a murder. Because at the time that he was arrested, he was charged with a federal offense of transporting a minor, a child, across state lines for sexual gratification. So they, get it, they got him with kidnapping, sexual gratification, rape. And they never charged him with her murder. But he ultimately got life without possibility of parole in prison. And that was good enough for the prosecution to leave him in prison for the rest of his life. Wow. I i don't know as much about the story as you. I'm kind of shocked to hear that you think he had 50 victims. Because, um, as we'll get into, they, they really only... He's only confessed to two, right? No, he's confessed... Okay, well... He's confessed to a lot, but then he's also falsely confessed to some. So it gets very complicated. You'll explain it later. Uh, but this guy has a really messed up, weird upbringing, which I think we should start with before we go into his story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, he's, he's a twin. He had a twin brother, but he and his brothers look nothing alike. And um, he was born December 11, 1962. Uh, the first few days of his life, after his birth, he spent in an emergency room because of lack of oxygen. And there's this fetal, uh, I guess, abnormality that happened between he and his brother because at one point, his brother began to feed on him in the womb. I know that sounds very ominous and very creepy, but that's exactly what happened. So when they were born, they had to put him in a chamber to really... I guess, bring him through so he would live. Um, so that's how his, his, his life begins. Obviously not very good, but um, his brother's his twin, and this is a perfect example of the two brothers being completely different because of how they were born. And they were born with certain states of mind, um, and although they didn't really have a state of mind when you're born, but they already were born the way they were born. And um, this guy grew up really in a very weird setting. If you're going to, you know, become a serial killer, but this is the perfect setting. He grows up being a, uh, a digger of graves, a grave digger. That's what this guy did. And, you know, he was antisocial. He did go to high school. He was considered to have a low IQ, but uh, he made it through high school. Yeah, he's a little weird, a little awkward. How many guys at that age are not weird and a little awkward? But this guy, um, is suspected of a lot of little things as a child. There's no real proof of it. Arson, burglary, petty crimes. Again, not that strange. The digging up graves thing, 
eh, a little weird. Um, but he lives his life pretty quietly. Lives in a you know, with parents who are older. Their mother's a narcissist. Father is a grave digger. Works works in a cemetery. He's an alcoholic. There's no real proof that he beats up on the kids or anything. But man, this guy really, even in high school, people who work like him. He's very uh, conscious of his duties, um, and he. This is what he does. He graduates. Becomes a janitor. People like what he does. They say he's yes, he's quiet. He's got a funny voice, but he doesn't set off any huge alarms because when they tell him to do something, meaning clean the gym, wash the toilet, X Y Z, he does a perfect job. He's extremely good at what he does, and he goes under the radar. Yeah, you t- touched on his brother. His brother's also really creepy. Um, I don't know if you want to, maybe later we can talk about a lot of people theorize that his brother was involved in the killings uh, in some of them. But you kind of, I feel like you insinuated his brother was normal and he's not. Well, I, <laughs> yeah, good point. I mean, normal <laughs> compared to this guy and what this guy was accused of. But you did touch on a point that I have been thinking about, which is how much involvement his brother had in all of this. So, of course, his brother is a normal citizen. His brother is um, Gary Hall. And we can't pin anything on him because we would be open to a lawsuit because he hasn't been convicted or charged in any crime. So we have to be tread carefully there. Um, but, look, this guy, really, no one knows about this guy. And he gets out of high school, becomes a janitor, and really nothing's heard of this guy until 1993. So you have about 14 years with nothing, no problems. You know, yeah, he's considered a creepy guy. He, him and his brother go into these, go into uh, civil uh, historical reenactments, civil war reenactments. So he's grown up, he's Larry has brought these, these mutton chops on the side of his face so he looks the part. He's taken to uh, this in reenactments like almost his own life. He speaks like these guys. He's almost like he's taking up the persona of the people he's reenacting, which is kind of weird. So, I mean, there's a lot of guys that do stuff, you know, so he doesn't have much of a life. He's not the best looking guy in the world. So, this is something he really likes. His brother, on the other hand, is quite the opposite. Kind of a smooth talker. Athlete in high school. You know, didn't go to college, but he's an athlete. Women find him charming. So, kind of the opposite guy. So, as I mentioned, in 1993, suddenly, a girl by the name of Jessica Roach disappears from Georgetown, Illinois. And then two months later, she's found in a cornfield by a heavy machine operator basically a farmer who's about to plow his crop and he finds, he sees a lump on the other day, he goes to, he turns out to be a young body. They after DNA testing, they discover that it is Jessica Roach. So around this time, several of the people saw a man talking to girls and then the guy was a two-tone Dodge van. And when we get back, I'll touch on that. Anyway, 
yeah, this guy loves cruising in his van and trying to, I don't know if he's trying to pick up chicks or just kind of bother them. I don't know if he has any delusions of success in this endeavor, but anyway, continue. Well, he's stalking is what he's doing. That's exactly what he's doing. He is stalking these girls. And, you know, this is really what gets him under the radar because these two girls uh, notice a van behind him as they're walking in this area not too much after uh, 15-year-old Jessica Roach uh, disappears. And the girls see the van, and at one point, Larry Hall pulls up next to them, and the girls take off running. They feel that this guy's a bad guy. They run home, and their father actually sees the van and gets chased to it. As he's chasing the van, which is driven by Larry Hall, he is writing down the license plate. At one point, Larry Hall eludes this father, and he goes to the police department, gives the license plates, and of course, police find out that it belongs to Larry Hall, and they bring him in for questioning. So, you know, as this is going on, they do check his van, and they find physical evidence that gives, really, it raises people's eyebrows. They find duct tape. They, they basically find a rape kit. They have condoms, they have rags, they have the belts to tie people, um, and the cops begin to talk to this guy. And as they're speaking to him, he begins to start elaborating about dreams that he has. These dreams where he's very violent and he harms women and young girls. But he always ends the sentence with, well, you know, this is only a dream I'm having. So he's not as dumb as people think he is, but he's talking about this. And during the, the really the conversation, one of the detectives shows him a photograph of Jessica Roach. And they say, according to the reports, that he physically flinches when they show him the photograph. And everything is really falling into place for the law enforcement. He drives an 82 uh, Dodge van. People saw a van near where Jessica Roach was left. Um, and then suddenly, he begins to talk about details about the crime that only the killer would know. And that was a real big problem for law enforcement. And then he begins to confess. He confesses the charges and then he recants it. He says certain things and he pulls back. When they start investing, they find that he's done this several times with other law enforcement who have talked to him. He'll confess and then recant. And at this point, police is already beginning to believe this guy is one of those guys that loves attention. So he'll say he did something just to get the attention, go in a squad car to a particular place where the body might be, and there's nothing there. So that kind of almost fools law enforcement into believing this guy is nothing more than a talker. I want to talk about a couple of things real quick. The flinching, is that just that he had thought and he'd got away with it is that it's obviously a tell, but um, I, I wonder why he couldn't control that or, or just if what the significance is. And also kind of the same with the condoms because, you know, I, I just, I don't think of rapists as being like practicing safe sex or whatever. So it seems like he's uh, pretty calculated 
I've never even heard of that. Um, I just wouldn't think that that would be a thing that you'd be prepared for. Well, obviously, by 1993, he's already a serial killer. He's been killing for... And I jumped to 1993 to give the audience a perspective of how this guy was caught. But he had been killing for about 14 years. He's very well versed in what he was doing. The rape kit he had, very calculated. That he had condoms means he had knowledge that DNA could get him caught. Oh, okay. It's one of the reasons he got rid of all the bodies. He's calculated, and he's an organized killer, which people would never think by just speaking of because he has a low IQ. But he does know his craft, which is killing, raping, and maiming, and torturing. So... Uh, yes, they found this in his car, and but he does tell them that he's never seen her before, although he flinched at the photograph. The flinching in the photograph tells me that they caught him by surprise, and he never thought that they would connect the one murder to him. So that was something he could not control. It's very instinctive. And, and we'll learn more as we speak about this and why he flinched. And so please keep that in mind. But he immediately says that he's never seen her before, and when they go to his van and they search it, they find evidence that she was, in fact, there. Now, I believe at that point, law enforcement made a few mistakes because they underestimated him. They underestimated him, and they ended up cutting him loose, although other states were already asking questions about him. Right. And so was his strategy of, I don't know, confessing and then sort of, he was either falsely confessing or he was confessing to actual murders that he did, but then not supplying the correct details or supplying false information. Was this like a calculated strategy on his part? He's, he's not real smart intellectually, or is, was he just getting attention from law enforcement for his own amusement and it just kind of worked out for him? Well, I don't think that he was looking for the cops to look at him. When they did come to him, I think there's a part of him that wanted to confess and another part of him that was, of course, didn't want to get caught. So I think, you know, it's like when you get caught doing something and a part of you feels a bit of guilt, I think that was going on with him. And then he realizes... They're going to arrest him. I keep talking. And he goes back to his dream. He liked telling them what he did because he was reliving in the, the, the whole ordeal in his mind. This is what you have to understand about serial killers of this caliber. What he was doing as he was speaking, he was actually getting off on it. It was bringing and re reliving the whole crime again by telling police this. This is something he's done before. And that's why he liked talking about it. But again, he was able to bring it back in by saying, look, it's all a dream. I have these dreams all the time. So there's a bit of all that going on there. This is a very complicated guy. He does have a low IQ, but he knows what he's doing. You don't have to be the best in the world or have a 170 IQ to be able to kill people. So did this... natural for him. Did it... Did his sort of, I don't know, reliving these things with law enforcement, I'm basing this on the TV show, so take it with a grain of salt, but did they just think he's one of these nuts who just kind of wants to be involved in cases and, and is falsely confessing? Like, did it accidentally benefit him? Because I would think, okay, you either 
don't talk to law enforcement or you, you just straight up lie, but like giving them little kernels of truth and then backtracking and convoluting it, it actually seems like a really good strategy. Yes, it is. And it did work out to his benefit because he, he had all the law, the law enforcement believing this guy's a serial confessor. He likes to confess to things for the attention. But what they did not know was that he was reliving the crimes and actually getting gratification from it. It's one of the things that a lot of People don't understand what serial killers are. As they're talking about these things, they're reliving it. They're receiving gratification from it. It's a bit of control as well. So he did this. Well, you always talk about... Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. You always talk about, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, and it's easy to armchair quarterback things, but should law enforcement have been a little more concerned about this, taking it a little more seriously? Well, sure, they did take it serious. When he said, look, I put the body there, they went to those locations and looked for the body he said he put there when he began confessing. There was no bodies there. That's when they said, this guy's just full of crap. He's, he's a serial confessor. He likes the attention. You all find about people in Indiana and in places where in 1993, they probably weren't as aware as probably Los Angeles PD of how serial killers work. And they didn't believe this guy was a serial killer. They thought he was a creepy guy, but they didn't think he was a serial killer. He was talking to a few girls. The dad wrote the license plate down. They brought him in. And they started asking him questions. He started to confess and all this stuff. They know his IQ is low. So they figured, eh, he's just confessing. It wasn't until other law enforcement came in and really began to focus on this guy because it didn't take long. This was years. Of, once in 1993 when that girl, Jessica Roach, disappeared, it was... Within five months that they already had him in custody, they knew that this guy had, in fact, they couldn't prove he killed her because they did not have the evidence. The body, when it was found, was so mangled, it had been run over by a, a crop uh, plower. And it really did a bad job on the body. What that did, it didn't allow the coroner to give a, uh, with a medical certainty, a cause of death. That was the big problem. So they couldn't prove that he killed her. So they only charged the man with the mur with her kidnapping, crossing state line for sexual gratification and rape. That's a federal offense. That's why the feds got involved in it, and that's how the federal prosecutor got involved in this case. Now, his life, his hobby as a Civil War and Revolutionary War reenactment guy. A lot of our listeners are foreign. They probably have no concept of this, although it is pretty self-explanatory. Uh, Bill, do you think this is a weird behavior to partake in? I mean, I like history and everything. I should tell the listeners that there's a big chasm between the two groups. Not two groups, but in the reenactment community, a lot of them want to wear Oakley sunglasses, like cop glasses, because they think they look really cool. And <clears throat> the other contingent says they didn't have those during the Civil War. Um, so I'm not judging someone for participating in these things, although you should request. I, I feel like there's not enough requests to be on the North side, right? Like, I feel like a lot of these guys... A little too into the southern part of it for my taste. 
anyway, well, I guess that's my first question. Do you think, just on its face, this is weird? No, I mean, look, <laughs> and I guess people doing Shakespeare uh, plays would be considered weird, too, because they dress up like they did back when Shakespeare was around. But this is theater. This is theatrical. They're reliving American history, and they find that time, that space, that particular element in, in American history very interesting. I, I think that as a person who likes history, I don't see anything weird about it. Now, when you start believing that you're a particular general or a particular corporal at that time and start speaking like him, and according to Larry Hall, he also found a lot of interest in the mind frame that girls at the age of 13, and these are his words, were ripe for the picking. So he believed that Back then, they had it right. So a girl got married at 12 years old. So you can have sex with them. This was a big problem today, of course, because we don't believe in that. But back then, they did. So it was almost like an excuse for his behavior. Oh, that's interesting. Says, well, yeah. I like it. Yeah, no, this is, a, this is a guy that looked for a particular uh, a particular space that would confirm his what he was thinking, what he was doing. So, of course, if they believe at 12, 13 years old, you're ready to be married, this kind of jealous of what he is saying because he likes to rape women at that age. Uh, you see how that works for him? So, yeah, but I yeah, always assumed that... I, I just thought these these gatherings were an excuse for, you know, married guys to make out with each other in tents. But... No. <laughs> well, only, only you would think that I'm sure those, some of those guys heard you to be like, okay, we like to talk to Matt real, you know, real intimately like. The truth is that this gelled with he was. He believed in that time frame specifically because of the girls he chose to molest were very young. And this gave him an excuse, like, hey, that's what, how we thought back then. This is who I am. And that's kind of his excuse for his behavior. And I've always told you that serial killers like to look for certain excuses for what they do when they confess. They also use that. This is kind of a, a, a peek into that mind frame. Let me call back. Hey, ma'am. Yeah, so that's crazy about him like identifying with the with the historical period culture of nubile girls. That's that's way off the radar for me. I wouldn't have thought that. But is his uh so these reenactments take place in all these rural areas, you know, different states in the, you know, Midwest, Appalachia, etc. Uh so is this um does this give him like an alibi or is there any significance to he gets to travel around a lot. He's on the road. Like, did he calculate this part of it, or is it just um, that the two things work out independently? Well, that, that's a good point, but you're, you're absolutely right. That's how law enforcement began to really look at this guy, because they, they did find him guilty of those crimes I spoke about, rape, kidnapping, crossing the state line. And he went to a federal, basically, mental institute, because... Truthfully, the guy is freaking out of his mind. But so they began to look back and they started looking at these reenactments, Civil War, revolutionary reenactments, and then they began to trace back girls that were found. And his MO was usually they were strangled, um, raped. sexual mutilation, meaning that he mutilated the young girls, and sometimes even older girls, meaning 
in their late teens, mid-twenties. Um, so you have to look at this for what it is. He also stabbed them uh, savagely. And he mutilated the bodies as well as the sexual organs. So that tells me is this guy is extremely angry at what he's doing. He's angry at the girls themselves because of rejection. These girls always reject him. And this is that little moment where he completely blows up because of the rejection. He wants to be the cool guy. You know, he's a revolutionary guy. He's in his mind when he's doing these things. He believes he's that guy. So he expects women to respond to him in a way that they would respond to a hero. And when they don't, it angers him. So what law enforcement does, which is very, very good, they started tracing where he was at a particular revolutionary or civil war reenactment and then looked for cases of disappearing children, women, girls, and bodies found. And they did, in 19, they found that in 1981 in February from Grand Rapids, Michigan, a girl disappeared from a middle school and her name was Deborah Cole. Um, and she, her hometown was in Indiana. And they kept looking and of course, over a 13-year span, they discovered that there was 10 girls that were directly linked by location to where he was reenacting one of these Civil War things. And the girls were found mutilated, strangled. So you have an MO, and you have location, opportunity, and all these things that the law enforcement looks for, and he clicked all the boxes. So, of course, they bring him in, and of course, he starts, yes, I did this. He actually confessed to 39 murders, and he had details that only the killer would have. But they couldn't charge him because it's all they have bodies, that it, too much time that elapsed. And I really believe that in these particular cases, you had a couple local police forces that did not really do a competent job. It wasn't until the federal government, the FBI got involved that things started to change. Do we know anything about these girls that have disappeared? Like, do we have clues? Do we have identities? Or what do we have? Yeah, absolutely. We do have a lot of Jane Doe's who were never identified because of the decomposition of the body, their skeletal remains. But we do have a lot of girls here. We have Mary Peters, she was 15. Deborah Cole, just a child of 12. Jennifer Smith, Marcy Fuller, Denise Flume, uh, Talia Chavez, or for Leah Chavez, Kimberly Thompson, uh, Linda Wilde, and the list goes on and on. As I mentioned, he is suspected of killing nearly 50 women and children. So, but they never, to this day, they really haven't charged him with all of these murders. What they did do is, when they convicted of Matt, and I think this was where the story of Blackbird comes in, we talked about this, the FBI is afraid. They're afraid that because of the conviction they got, his lawyer was able to convince courts that he was basically coerced into testifying 
or giving a confession about this, and that he is, because of his IQ level, and because he is a guy who, that he was coerced. And the FBI is actually afraid that that's exactly what's going to happen, that the court's going to find the conviction to be on its face, unconstitutional, and they're going to throw it out. They're so afraid that the FBI approaches a guy by the name of James or Jimmy Keen. Now, Jimmy Keen plays a huge part in this case because he has been arrested. Look, this guy's a jock. High school star, good-looking guy, charismatic, really knows how to read people. And he's serving 10 years because he was caught dealing drugs and weapons. So what the FBI wants from this guy, and by the way, Jimmy, Jimmy Key's father is a cop. And he's in bad health. And Jimmy Key is looking for a way out. And it sounds like a movie because it is, but it's actually true. So the FBI approaches this guy and basically tells him they want him to befriend Hall. They want him to go into hell and get the devil to confess. So they sent him into this federal medical facility to do exactly that, to befriend Hall and get him to confess to where the bodies are. That's what they want. They want the bodies so they can convict him and put him away forever because if they let him out, they're afraid he's going to continue killing. Kind of a cliffhanger right? there for any case, right? Yeah, it is. So, huh. Yeah, I never thought about this scenario, which I guess is the premise of the Blackbird show. But uh, so they walk me through that again. They're they're afraid that because they've nailed him, but that his confessions are a bit tenuous and he's still playing a lot of games that if they press him or explore more of them in detail, that he'll then recount the other ones and he'll get off on a technicality. No. No. What the FBI is afraid of is that the court is going to throw out the confessions he get, which basically got him arrested and got him convicted. And if they throw him out, they're afraid he's going to get out and he's going to continue murdering people. Okay, so so because he's a dumb guy, so they're just afraid that... So his lawyers are trying to press that the confessions were coerced. Absolutely. And look, he did. He confessed to 39 different murders. He confessed to them. But he better recant to all of them. So, of course, the courts are looking at that, and that's why I sent Jimmy King in it. And Jimmy King actually befriends them. They start speaking. And really, that's where you start getting a lot of, of the insight into Larry Hall's mental state. And at one point, he tells Jimmy King, because Jimmy King's a smart guy, look, We've talked about this, and I've mentioned this. Even serial killers look up to somebody. Serial killers are usually, sometimes, Ted Bundy, obviously not one of those guys, but some of these guys are very insecure. Some of them are looking for affirmation. They're looking for someone to say, at a boy. And Larry Hall, I believe, saw his brother Gary in this guy, Jimmy King. Athlete, good guy, good-looking guy, girls like him. And he starts to buddy up to him and starts to talk to him. In this process, Jimmy King tells him that he kind of hates women too. And that's where 
Larry Hall makes the connection to you guys that he and he feel the same way about girls. So he begins to talk to them. At one point, he tells them about a young woman that had been missing and how he killed her. And Jimmy Key saw a map that he had drawn with all these red marks. And he had made these wooden falcons that were supposed to be placed at each one of these spots. And according to Larry Hall, they were the guardians of these girls he had killed. Really ominous, really creepy stuff. But this is exactly what happened. And then that's when he confessed to Jimmy Key that how he actually killed um, the young girl, Roach. And he said that at one point, um, he, you know, she got very upset, she started crying, and she was crying for her mother, and that he took her from the van to where a tree is, and had her, her back to the tree, so he could get behind the tree with two belts so she wouldn't have to look at him, and, she, and he strangled her that way and killed her. He also spoke about another case where he folded the, cl- the clothes very neatly and put them next to a tree. That's something no one had ever spoken about and police had kept it under wraps. And suddenly Hall admits this to King. King then immediately goes to, tries to go to law enforcement and tell him, look, I got the evidence of this guy. We got to get this guy's that map. You have to get it. And but by that time, the mental facility believed that Keen was a threat to Hall. They threw him in, the, in, the, in the administrative segregation for weeks till the FBI finally figured out what was going on. They got him out of there, and that's when he tells them what's going on. Right around that time, the court actually reversed his case, and they were going to set him free. They retried him, and they convicted him of all these of the crimes that he was initially put in prison for. So James Key played a key role in affirming that he was actually a murderer. Yeah, Keen seems like a pretty cool dude. Uh, he was a drug dealer, which I can't really get behind, but, you know, I don't know. You got to make a living somehow. So can we uh, let, can we pivot to your story real quick with Joseph Nasso? So like Keen, you were already in prison. You didn't transfer prisons, but you... kind of uh found yourself talking to this old serial killer and uh let's see i know you can't give a lot of specifics but was there a moment like the notebook moment that you ever had with naso absolutely and i I, I, we've talked about this before and i I can be very uh limited what i say but i wrote an entire book on it and yes there was a point where uh naso you know kind of clicked with me and he, he, I befriended him. He thought that I was another kindred spirit. And he began to tell me about all these things that he had done. And really can't go too much into detail about it, but because it's ongoing and it's something that that's um, going to be coming out pretty soon. But yes, it's very similar to that. And um, it's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to befriend a person that you know is a monster. And when it comes to someone like Jimmy Key who befriended this guy, I can see the struggles he went through as a, as a person, as a man, dealing with a person who has killed children and raped them and did all these things. It's a, it's a very tall order for anyone to be able to, if you ask FBI agents who have gone undercover for years, 
tells you, the, it, it kind of shows you the kind of stress it puts on a person's life. But, yeah, that's all I can really say about that. But this is a great case. And, um, obviously, Jimmy Key did uh, supply evidence enough to put this guy in prison the rest of his life. And I bet the tactics that you guys used were pretty similar. You're both, you know, athletic guys, you know, handsome guys in prison, and, and these are degenerate guys that have never had a lot of friends. I'm sure the dynamic in in a lot of instances was pretty similar. Very similar, yes. So when you're in this environment, I don't think hardly anyone can relate to it. Um, we've all manipulated someone to some degree, but not with the stakes being as high. Um, so what tactics do you use to gain this guy's trust? Yeah, that's an excellent question. It really depends on the circumstances. Um, for Jimmy Keene, in this particular circumstances, he's dealing with an antisocial sort of a serial killer, a guy who was already convicted of a crime, and it's, it's, it's a very difficult task you really have to be able to read the person. I think that's something that Jimmy, look, he was a charismatic, charismatic guy. This is why the FBI picked him out. Somebody else could not have done this. But he also had to read the situation. And once he understood what made Larry Hall tick, that's how he developed a plan. It's really that, it's not simple, but it's, that's the approach. You have to really figure out what makes the guy tick. And from there, you begin to talk to him. That's where the manipulation comes in. And, you know, people hate that word. You manipulated somebody. Well, in this circumstance, he needed to manipulate a serial killer to, be, to believe that he was going to be his friend. Remember, Larry Hall didn't have many friends because of how he looks. And he has interests that no one gives a damn about. No one cares about revolutionary reenactments. I mean, you said it yourself, you got to be from the Appalachian freaking mountains that want that stuff. The guy in Los Angeles, the good guy doesn't like that stuff. The, the guy living in Arkansas doesn't really like it. He wants to be in a club. He wants a nice car. Those types of things don't really turn people on. What Jimmy King was able to do was figure out how to talk to him. And then once he realized that he was ticking around young girls, he was able to infuse the conversation yeah, the way he describes it in a, a news piece I watched is he kind of said it a little bit nonchalantly, like I would think you would do. Obviously, you don't want the person to be suspicious of you. And I mean, is there a persistency involved that you just kind of in Keen's case, you know, part of the whole narrative is he they wanted him to take it slow and he was like, I got to get out of here because my father's dying. But what, can you talk about the persistence, like just the dogged determination of it or do at a certain point, do you have to just take a risk and just, you know, take a swing at it? Yeah, that's, I think that's exactly what, what, what Jimmy did. He, he had to make it happen fast. He had years or decades to do this. So he really had to push the issue. You risk getting caught or the guy climbing up because he figures out that you're trying to get information from him. Um, in Jimmy's case, he was able to prey on Larry's really sick compulsion and sick anger at women. 
so yeah, this guy was pressed for time. And look, he really had to read this guy. And there's no way around this. You can't send anybody to do this. But you really have to, in most cases, when you have the time, you've got to let the guy come to you. you got to let him know nonchalantly who you are or who you're faking to be and let him come to you. Once he comes to you, you can impose a dominant role on him. And that's a tricky thing with a serial killer. But once you establish dominance, I'm talking about male dominance. Usually, they're easier to manipulate once you figure out what they like and what really makes them tick. And that's what Jimmy did. He did it very quickly. But at the end, it was such strain on his, on his psyche, on his... It physically trained him that when this guy Hall really told him everything, he was actually... He murdered that girl that Jimmy actually came to him and told him that he was a piece of garbage for him harming those children. He was, you know, just the worst vile creature in the world. And that's when Hall realized Beaumont sent him. And in the book, he tells him, Beaumont sent you. Beaumont was the prosecutor, the federal prosecutor. He kept yelling, Beaumont sent you. Beaumont sent you. He realized that Jimmy was a plant, but it was too late. He had already gotten him to talk. And that was brilliant. I mean, I, I applaud Jimmy Clinton Keene. He did something that very few have been able to do, and that's to get a sexual predator to open up and tell you his secrets. In Keene's case, one of the things that he says he did that you reference is he stepped up to this tough prisoner that tried to turn off the TV, and you know he physically stepped up to him and that impressed Hall. And in your case with Naso, he was impressed by your artwork. And so you played that up, but I'm wondering, are there any physical postures or mannerisms that, that you would take on that would appeal or, or entice a guy like this? Like, do you, do you sit around leering at people? Do you not make eye contact or is there anything you can do to kind of get in character, you know? attracted, in his case, Larry, uh, Larry Hall. Of course, he stood up to a guy, and Larry Hall found that very, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure if attractive is a word, but he found it very like, wow, that's cool. This guy's a cool guy, and Jimmy King is a, is a cool guy. The whole drug dealing in art wasn't cool, but he knew how to be a, 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 you know, a cool guy. He told about his sports, about playing high school ball, and how it felt. Then he, he showed him a different side of him the vulnerable side so that he was insecure around women and then ultimately he hated women. That really worked for for Hall. So th these are things that you do. It's just, it's a matter of feeling somebody out. It's no different than when, extremes are different of course, but when you go to a car dealership and you're about to buy a car, look, I, just, I did this for a living at one time. So you look for tall tail signs. One of them is if you see a, a man dressed in expensive shoes, he's buying, you know, he's expensive shoes, expensive clothes, he walks in by himself, he doesn't have a wife, he doesn't have kids, that's the guy you want to go after because he's going to buy without conscience. If you find a man that comes in with two children, a wife, he's, he's budget conscience. So when a car dealer guy 
is trying to talk you to buy a car, it's the same thing. He's feeling you out, and he's, in some way, manipulating you to buy the car. Sometimes, yeah, a guy wants to buy a car, he's getting him to pay a little more for extra. All these things are part of a conversation that you feel. This is the same thing you do with Syracuse. It's an extremely different level. It's like Pop Warner's in NFL football, but it's how you do it. You have to know how to learn how to read people, observe people, and really get to know them quickly so you don't make the mistakes that turn them off. So what's the status now with Larry Hall and all of the murders that he probably committed or maybe committed or what what's what's going on with all this on an ongoing basis? Yeah, well he's he's committed to the federal penitentiary um, in um, in North Carolina. He's not getting out. He's in a federal correctional complex in North Carolina and that's it. He is, as I said, suspected killing up to fifty people. I believe the number is around forty or fifty. Um, all those girls that they found those fields next to reenactments or close to reenactments or actually on the grounds of the reenactment were Larry Hall. I have no doubt in my mind. He is never going to get out of prison. Whether they charge him with other ones may be a strain on taxpayers' uh, dollars. He's never going to get out, so why even do that? But um, look, they have the right guy in prison, and that guy should never be let out. He is a sexual sadist, and a serial killer. A guy like that, there's no place for him in society. And I'll be the first one to tell you that if you let him out, he'll do the same thing over again. So, um, they've never been able to actually find that map that Jimmy King said he saw in that federal penitentiary with the markings and the falcons. People believe that he burned them or threw them away. But the truth of the matter is, I believe Jimmy King that he saw that. Serial killers sometimes, and most of the time, on their own, in their cells, write things down, make maps, draw things out. We talked about the, the butcher baker. He did the same thing with 37 bodies. They had little red dots on, and they confirmed 17 as being bodies. So this guy is never going to get out mad. It's a fascinating case because of the element of Jimmy King and then the story Blackbird and the book that he wrote, of course, and the two series. But this is a fascinating case and a perfect example of you know, what we do at Death Row Diaries, which is talk about the inside scoop on serial killers and what happens when they get in prison. And, of course, in this case, we have a guy who manipulated someone, a serial killer, to really confess to his part in these murders. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we go, so Hall in prison still has the mutton chops. What? I'm sure we could do an hour on it, but, you know, just real quick, like, what's going on with this guy? What is his mental state? Does he think he's uh, a Civil War guy? Is he schizophrenic? Is he um, is he just autistic? Or, like, I don't know. There, there's something... Obviously, there's something wrong with him. That's, that's uh, to put, you know, to state the obvious. But what do you think is actually his deal mentally? Well, I mean... Sure, there's something wrong with him, and, and I don't mean that as like, well, he's a person we should feel sorry for. But his problem is that he's a sexual sadist, and he's a serial killer, he's a sexual predator. That's his problem. He can't fix that. The mutton chops and stuff like that, it's what he likes. He said guys who like Chevys, they're always going to like Chevys. Guys who like um, 
you know, have pompadour hair, hairdos, and they still wear those pompadours and they're 70 years old. It's something he likes. And he relates to the whole revolutionary reenactment in that time frame, and it fits who he is. But one thing we haven't talked about was that in the van, when they found that van, when they pulled him over and they, and they checked for evidence, they found pornographic magazines in that in the, the van. Those pornographic magazines had the eyes of women of girls cut out, uh, blood coming out of their mouth, had nooses tied around their neck, their genitalia being cut out. This guy's a sexual safe. This is what he is, this is who he, what he does. The strain of mind has not changed in prison. If anything, he's become more focused. Because in prison, he can be whoever he wants to be. He doesn't have to change, he doesn't have to hide. He knows he's never getting out. So, this continues on with him. There's nothing you can do to stop that because he's in a mental institution, in a federal complex, and that's not going to change. Well, it's been interesting as always. Until next time, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm willing to go. Be safe, be aware of your surroundings, your life can depend on it. We'll see you next time.